Welcome to Words on Whiskey, episode 60. But it's a very different show this evening. We're taking it one stage further, if you like, than what we did last week, where we had Lockerie Distillery, where they were in the process of setting up their distillery and haven't got the point of commencing the build yet. But what we have here is James Doherty from Sleeve League, who is based in Donegal in beautiful lands of Sleeve League. And they have managed to make their dream come true and produce and create a fantastic distillery there. So James will take us through that process and share with us his experience uh, of how he got to where he is and where they're going. So let's just bring in James. So if you have any questions, please do post them in the chat and we'll delight to answer them. So let's bring in James. James, good evening. Hey, Sir Joss, how are you keeping? Very good. Well, it's been quite a week for you. Yeah, it's been a it's been a long time coming, and there's a kind of strange mix of relief and excitement. And it, it wasn't any tears, but there was certainly a bit of dust in the eye. Yeah, I can imagine. I know. I know it's been a long a long road to get to where you have. But you seem to be making great strides in terms of the brand as well as uh, the distillery. But let's go back, if you like. And tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up leading the corporate world, if you like, a very successful corporate positions in, in, in big brands in the drinks industry. So maybe a little bit about uh, your Irish roots and heritage and how you decided to come back to Ireland. Surely. Um, well, so I suppose uh, my um, my parents, uh, my mum's from Kilcar, which is here in Donegal, just down the road from where we are now. And my dad, although he was born in England, was also... Uh, his parents were from the, from the same area, so from Carrot. In fact, the house I live in, we bought off the internet, and um, it turned out it was my grand, great-grandmother's homestead. So yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a bit of serendipity in there. But I, um, I suppose I had a very kind of typical first-generation sort of English-Irish kid um, living you know, in the UK, going through the product of an English schooling system, uh, mad keen on rugby and cricket, which probably looked particularly popular up here. But... Um, uh, spending all of our summers kind of feral on the farm <laughs> and, uh, yes, yeah. you know, fishing and enjoying the whole time. And uh, I, I studied agriculture. I went off to Africa for, um, uh, for a year, met Moira, actually my wife, and she's from Zimbabwe. We came back, uh, I finished my degree, did a master's in, in, in water engineering, which has actually come in handy now. Um, yeah. And then went back out to Africa for six years on growing tea and coffee uh, and peppers, uh, peppercorns, um, a few things like that. But we came back at the end of the 90s and, and bizarrely was just targeting food and drink companies. And, and a guy at William Grant's uh, called Vincent Heavey was recruiting for someone for Eastern Europe sales role. Um, and it was, he wanted it, someone with sales experience, some European languages, and, um, and I didn't have either of those. But he took me on to the punt on me, and, and really, uh, I was very fortunate to work, walk into grants at a time, and it's still a hugely entrepreneurial business, but at that time it was, you know, there were masses of innovation going on. There was um, uh, kind of moving from a Scotch whiskey business to an international branded business, and, and I suppose my kind of engineering problem-solving mindset got to work in, a, in marketing rather than in, uh, in solving engineering problems. So I worked my way through the business, um, did some time in duty-free just after that collapsed, which was a kind of fascinating time trying to solve what, what the travel retail business would look like. Working for a guy called Bob Downey and ended up on the board 
for, did four years on the board looking after the international sales piece of the world um, that nobody else wanted. So I had Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, Middle East, Africa, bits of Asia and Latin America. And, and they all had kind of interesting challenges to solve. So Paul Rochford, my FD and myself kind of traveled the world problem solving, troubleshooting and, and growing brands in, in kind of emerging markets. So great time. Yeah. Um, left Grants and um, just after we bought Tullamore Jew or the, after Grants bought Tullamore Jew and went to work for Sab, for Foster's initially, but Foster's then got taken over by Sab Miller. Sab Miller wanted, didn't want me to move to Melbourne, said could I go to Hong Kong for them and, and open up Peroni in Asia, which probably got the toughest gig in the world to be fair. Um, but went out, did a couple of years at it, but very shortly after kind of getting there, Moore and I were both of a mind that the corporate kind of world wasn't really where we wanted to be. And, and there'd been these ideas that we'd been building over time with, within grants when I was working there, kind of thinking about things. And I said to Mo, um, you know that idea you had for seaweed and alcohol? I think it's gin and I think we can do it like you know this. And that's what I'm doing with this. And I said, do you know what? There's a, there's a style of Irish whiskey that's been lost and it's this smoky... Smoke, dry, smoky style that's put pre-prohibition, and I said I think there's a really distinctive position in there. And I think we could do it, and yeah. So that's six, nearly six years ago now when we came back. 2014. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we would the kind of dream of uh, you know we talk about reclaiming the distilling heritage of Donegal and doing that through savoury maritime gin and smoky Irish whiskey. Yeah, I mean, did you choose this as a as a lifestyle choice, a lifestyle business, as opposed to? Yeah, I'm not um, one or a bit of both. A bit of both, I think. Actually, I, I, I do think I'm, I'm guilty of probably selling Moira as a lifestyle choice <laughs> <laughs> a bit more um, than the, you know the the reality. I think is that I'm a I'm a commercial beast, and I kind of know you know I'm, I'm kind of ambitious, ambitious not just for ourselves but for for the whole area. And and to do that, I think you need to you need to produce a scalable business and. Um, so, you know, distinctive international spirits ba- business based in Donegal. I think for, uh, um, I think for my, for Moira, I think she thought it would be a much smaller business for a bit longer. Um, but, you know, as you commented on earlier, the last three years, the business is really, you know, we've, we've overcome the hurdles we had at the beginning and, and the business is kind of growing, you know, rapidly and well. Um, and you know, we're in a we're in a good place despite COVID. So you know, we're very very grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, obviously working for these big brands, like you mentioned, Barone, Barone Fosters. What do you take from working in uh, corporations, if you like, for that size? Yeah. How do you apply those to you know a medium to small size business? I think some of the lessons that are, kind of, are actually very, very applicable. So I think, you know, kind of focusing on doing a few things well, um, you know, it's very easy to get distracted by doing lots and lots of things. So we try and um, try to focus on doing, you know, a few brands and do them as well as we possibly can. Very quickly after we arrived, we, we realized that there's a, there's a rhythm to your life in a corporate world that's driven by reports and things. And, um, uh, and we kind of put that on ourselves to give ourselves structure. So, you know, we kind of forced ourselves to sort of report, you know, not quite monthly, but certainly quarterly check in. How are we doing? Who are we do, you know, are we doing the things we said we would do? Um, so I think that stuff is, is very, is very applicable. And then from a, a why do you exist kind of perspective you know we, the, the idea of 
reclaiming the distilling heritage Johnny Gold for us is a big idea, but it's also an extremely uh, sensible idea from a commercial perspective because it's a very distinctive position. It, it doesn't directly compete with kind of any of the bigger kind of brands that are out there. It allows us to take kind of target profitable niches in the business rather than uh, looking at areas where maybe the bigger guys are not looking or maybe that they the opportunities that, that they would have looked at and just decided they're too small or they're too complicated to access or whatever. So that that portfolio we've built is kind of targeting kind of specific niches that we see. And actually they're, they're also things that we're passionate about doing. So we make ultimately we make drinks that we like more than anything else. Yeah. So, I mean, you've taken yourself and the family, I guess, from Hong Kong, from Malawi, <laughs> from Eastern Europe, from yep. the UK, and you settled home in uh, a very, very rural, but stunning part of the world. And really, if people aren't familiar with that, I'd just like to, to share, maybe, um, let me see if I can do that, actually. Um, that's an inspiring place that we live, sorry. Yeah, it certainly is. And I think it's important that we kind of get a chance to, to share that. So let's see if I can do that. Okay, you, you, you carry on and tell us a bit yeah. about where you are then now, and I'll get that up and running. Yeah, we live in, in southwest Donegal. We live on the Sydney Peninsula, and it's um, we live in between the village of, of Carrick and Ardra. So our gin distillery is in Carrick at the moment, and the whiskey distillery is in Ardra. Um, we live right in the shadow of the Schlieve, the mountain of flagstones. It's a, it's a beautiful, um, raw and inspiring place. It's, um, it's, it's out, you know, it's, it's on the edge of Ireland. It's on the edge of Europe. Um, but it's, it's a home to a kind of resilient, um, people that have, you know, a sort of sense of melancholy and mischief. I, I describe it as that, that's, um, calls to you and it called to me even though you know I was born in England and brought up there it called me to come back and uh, and do what we do but you know whether it's Sweet League itself the Silver Strand the beaches around here you, you can't be anything but inspired by the, the, the beauty that surrounds us here it's, and it's not Chocolate Box Island it's it's um it feels it's not it's not pretty in a way that the sort of Wicklow Mountains are pretty. It's it's beautiful in a kind of raw and challenging way, and, and that kind of brings a lovely angle to 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 what we try to bring to the world in spirits. I think. Yeah. Is this something that you kind of are longing to come home? Be like, is that how you see it? And then obviously the business fits in so nicely with it. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think actually, you know, one of the things that both Moore and I would say would be we've been slightly gypsy-like in terms of, the, you know, we've moved around the world and explored places and learned new things. And um, But I also think that there's something about being slightly on the outside. I mean, we wanted to come somewhere and we wanted to put our roots down and do something that had kind of could, could I, I suppose I wanted to do something that really could change the way people thought about the Delta. So instead of trying to champion the Irish language, try and bring a, a different take on, on the, the Donegal Delta and what it could bring to Irish spirits. And I thought that was a, an interesting, differentiated and kind of reasonably ownable territory that we could um, bring to the world and, and do it in a way that created employment for a lot of people might spark more distilleries, you know, ultimately I think Donegal should have, you know, could have as many as five distilleries, maybe six would be a good number, especially if you had one up in Derry. 
So you could kind of make it a place of pilgrimage. And, and you know, the style of whiskey that would have been here and the styles of pochin that would have been here, all of those would have been smoky originally. And so that, for me, is that kind of calling that brought us back, made it worth coming here. And, you know, could could ultimately create opportunity. You know, as you know yourself, Sergio, so your job in a, a distillery probably provides another sort of five to ten jobs around it in terms of support industries uh, and what I have. So it's a, they're great businesses because they're not here for tax breaks. They take sense of place and make it really, really central to what you do. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, with us, we try and do things that celebrate Donegal, that are soft drinking hard spirits, and that... Um, are beautiful, not necessarily pretty, um, but ultimately challenge the way people see a category as it is at the moment. And so that's one of the things that you're probably, you know, with, with savoury Irish maritime gin instead of the sweet gins that, that are, are out there. And then bringing this sort of smoky whiskey back, but bringing it in with um, dark silky, you know, silky. I think silky itself has this hint of smoke, but dark silky brings it up a level and starts to tell you a different story about where things can go. Yeah, I mean, uh, I see a comment there from Kevin Cunningham. I believe he's local, isn't he? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good local name. So yeah, um, for sure. Excellent, and then uh, some people in from Argentina, Jonathan. So you know, we have people from all over the world coming in to have a look. But as I said, I want, I did want to share, uh, give a sense of place if you like to to your setup. So let's yeah. let's shoot the show. How magnificent the area is. So that's obviously uh, Sweden League and the, the highest cliffs in Europe, I believe. Well, yeah, so among the highest cliffs in Europe. I think the yeah, <laughs> everybody argues about this, but uh, you know that's the back of the mountain. So Schlieve League is the mountain of flagstones on the back of it. That's actually the, the, the viewpoint of Bunk Glass, and you can see the giant's table and chairs there. So it's about 600 meters to the top, uh, and a fearsome you know one man's pass that actually takes you to the peak, which is um, I think it's 45 centimeters wide. You have a 600 meter drop down one side, and probably a 300 meter drop on the other side. Um, so not for the faint-hearted, although I do know that um, uh, one of the distillers from uh, Tullamore actually base-jumped off it. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, and that's on YouTube, so you can you can look up Greg McIntyre and see. Uh, I've stood up there, all right, and I, I can promise you the weather was not like it looks in this photograph, but, um, <laughs> but you can see the northern lights from up there as well, so um, you know, on, a, on a good day when there's not too much cloud. And that's the, the sail, the rock that you can see there that sort of swoops around to the right. Yeah. Um, that's people abseil and climb that. And, and at the top, you've got the Martello Towers that were there. That's to, the watchtower, is it? Yeah, they were there to warn of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, so the Napoleonic era, that if it's a French landed somewhere, that they would light a fire on the top of each one of those that would send a signal around the coast to, to get a message to Dublin. So. Uh, yeah. I guess the days before mobile phones. <laughs> there's a, a day, uh, perhaps a bit more realistic, the weather there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it is magnificent. It, it is. And, and, you know, if you're up here, you would say, if you don't like the weather, wait 10 minutes because it'll probably change. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It changes a lot. But, yeah. yeah. No, lovely, lovely. And, of course, the Northwest is synonymous with, uh, I suppose, primarily coaching more than, more than anything. Uh, illicit distilling and distilling, but uh, of course, you did have whiskey produced there as well, you know, particularly in Gary. But Jimmy yeah. Ball, if you like, had the reputation of producing the finest, the finest pudding in the world. And uh, how aware were you of that 
and what started all this journey? Well, the, I mean, the, the, so I, knew, I actually um, had hitchhiked over here when I was a student, and shortly before my brand died, she gave me my grandfather's recipe. And, and to my knowledge, I know I've got 70 odd cousins, she never gave it to any of the others. Um, and at the time, I was farming, so she had no reason to give it to me, really. Um, but you know, I was always taken by, you know, my granddad had a mischievous glint in his eye. He was a wonderful, gentle, big man. I mean, he was six foot three, you know, and he was, so he was a big man. But he, he was a, a pochi maker of some renown. And my dad tells me tales of, of his dad and his great, you know, his grandfather being pochi maker. So they're up in the hills. And if you look at coffee and him writing about, you know, his time as a tax inspector, you know, he, he, he refers to, um, most farmers in Donegal being full-time distillers and part-time part-time farmers and not the other way around, which was what they all claimed. So, you know, it's, it, and there's some stats I think you had in the Irish Whiskey magazine some years ago which showed that there were more still seizures in Donegal than, than, oh, than anywhere else. else. Yeah, it was amazing. crazy. And, and to me, then, that, the, the idea that you don't have a legitimate distilling presence here is kind of really, really odd. And... Um, and the last distillery here was Burt, which is on the road between Letterkenny and, and, and Derry, and the, and the chimney in the original stillhouse is still standing. Um, well, there was a big distillery. I saw the capacity there was, you know, 200,000 gallons. Gallons. It was a big distillery, yeah. but it made, uh, I think it made light-style whiskies and, and, you know, probably was trying, you're certainly not going to sell anything into its home market when most of the illicit pot would have been heated. You know, the idea that they wouldn't have been is crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, the style of whiskey that you're looking to produce, uh, obviously now you have the good privilege to do pretty much what you want. But yeah. Pretty much uh, nailed it across to, to Peter Whiskey. And, uh, and, and I think the only one that is, you know, from day one said that's what you want to do is Peter Whiskey when you get this done. Um, yeah. What, what was it? Is that a heart to the tradition of the local whiskey? Yeah, I think it, it, it's it's, a, it's more about sort of capturing that what would have been typical here. There, I think there was an Ulster style. Uh, there are people who know the history better than me, but the, the Ulster style of, of single malt would have been all of them peated originally, yeah. and, and it's almost a bit like the kind of pot still debate. You know, there's a, there's historical tradition and there's kind of modern tradition, and the the historical tradition of Ulster for me is is peated single malts. Um, now I'm going to do peated pot stills because that's what I want to do as well. And if you want to do, if, if you're going to do something for me, the, the, the kind of, you have to make choices in your business. You have to choice, have to make choice about how you're going to fund the business, how you're going to go to market. And one of the disciplines I learned at, at Sab Miller and, and actually two of our biggest investors or three of our biggest investors were, were main board directors at Sab Miller was, was the idea of where to play and how to win. So if you're going to play in international spirits and then particularly Irish whiskey, how do you win in there? Now, it doesn't mean I have to win the whole category, but how do I win my piece of it? And for me, that's about being distinctive um, and doing a single thing as well as you possibly can. So for me, that's kind of a pursuit of, of smoky whiskies through kind of peat as, and, and not complicating our lives by trying to please a more mainstream kind of solution. And, and you know, I know, I know why the, you know, we've had certain pushbacks in certain markets where people would say, well, we're leaving smoke and peat to the, to the Scots. And, and it's like, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll see about that kind of thing. But, um, the, so it's, it's certainly brought a few headaches, but actually in the main, it's because of the way we've, 
uh, worked with Great Northern on the Silkies and brought those to life. I think we brought those to life in a very uh, approachable way. So they're, they're, they're certainly smoky. They're not they're not peated in the way that you find in an Isla. But if we they're not ideally peaty, I think. No, and I think triple distilling kind of lifts lifts you, lifts those kind of. The, the flavors you lose in that third distillation, I think, are those kind of medicinal TCP iodine notes. And so you get a kind of cleaner, drier, ashy smoke um, yeah. that comes through. So I think that that is so approachable that, that it's not it's nowhere near as challenging as people think. And I, and I think what's really interesting is like being at Whiskey Live and, see, or, you know, and seeing people's reactions when they go, oh, I don't drink Peter Whiskey. So it's like, well, yeah. why don't you just have a try? And, and they're, oh, okay. You know, that unexpected nature of it, I think, is... Um, is kind of a it's a joyous thing, really. So, um, so I think we've, we've kind of taken. I think we see that how to win art question is by being distinctive, being very focused on that, and 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 not trying to be more things than we really are. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit then about um, some of the brands that you started off with? Because one of the first brands that you produced, I have it here, is uh, I might pronounce it there, Dulamon. Dulamon, that's right. Was which was a uh, a gin. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and why you went down that route first. Yeah. So the the the, the so we always wanted to create this idea of an international spirits business based in Donegal rather than a whiskey distillery just in Donegal. So that was always the idea was trying to create a portfolio of brands, and so the naming of the brands is all different as opposed to um, say Dingle, which is all all of the brands are called Dingle, and you know that's a I think it's a you know, a, a, a equally justifiable kind of route to success. Um, you know, but with its, but I think for us, it was always about kind of creating individual brands, individual brand worlds, and underpinning them with kind of technical credentials because we don't have. 200 years of distilling experience in the way that, that um, say, a middle, you know, the, the guys down at IBL would have. So, so how do you demonstrate that you do things that are credible, uh, you know, authentic and credible? And so, so with Dulemon, it is, um, this is actually inspired by a conversation that Moira had with my auntie. So we were picking dulse seaweed out on the rocks, and, you know, ready to dry it to have as a snack. And at the time, I was working on the in the, in the new brand section of grants, and, and Moira, we were doing Hendrix, you can imagine. So Moira said to me, "Has anyone ever done anything with this in alcohol?" At the time, no one had, and. Um, I kind of came back to her after a while and said, actually, I think it's gin. I think this is how we do it. And, and then Mo went off and kind of said, well, look, I think, look, I'm looking for names that are phonetically are Irish, but phonetically quite straightforward to say, like Dillamon is. Um, I, I came up with this concept of an Irish maritime gin. So it wasn't, I thought, and we felt like a seaweed gin is just a very narrow, um, a narrow opportunity and a gin of the sea is kind of a bit wider but actually a maritime gin plays into a much bigger narrative which we thought was important it's super technical so um, in fact I was picking this, so one of the seaweeds which is very shy uh, called pepper dulse or the truffle of the sea I was picking that last week under the full, uh, uh, with the full moon and the low tides um, and if you, if you look at the top of the bottom here it will actually tell you when we harvested the, those seaweeds so if you go onto the website and put in your bottle number, batch number in the moon phase, it will tell you who distilled it, when it was distilled, where all the botanicals are from, um, 
uh, what, how much alcohol we put in, how much alcohol we got out, how long it's been, how we bottled it, who bottled it, you know, who the team that actually were bottling it. So you know, you'll find out who actually waxed you of the bottles. And it was about creating this kind of savory, a gin that was kind of dense and complex from a taste perspective that would kind of almost be a whiskey drinker's gin in terms of complexity, um, but that told a story that was really specific, hyper-local to the Donegal Coast. Um, and hopefully it delivers that because it delivers for us a sort of credentials, a distilling credentials, because distilling seaweed, as any of the guys in the, in, who do it will tell you, it is far from straightforward and we had plenty of mistakes and and, uh, and happy accidents as well on the way. So, um, and, uh, and it's a beautiful bottle uh, and really distinctive. It was a Celtic bottle and Johnny Gold bottle. And, uh, we don't see it in the photo, but I, I love the seal on the very top of it. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, you know, just... Yeah. Well, it was kind of... Uh, we, we, the, the design uh, of, the, of the, the calligraphy and the artwork was done by a local artist, um, Sean Fitzgerald, and he... Um, we briefed him and we were working with Mark Keating who, who does a lot of porterhouse and dingle stuff as well um, and we wanted something that was really paired back we thought a gin from Donegal would not tell you would not have lots of Victorian pictures and stuff of, of leaves no. and plants and whatever it would tell you its name it could tell you what its category was Irish Maritime it would say I'm from Donegal and the rest of it you can deal with and then we wanted to make it fit. So the bottles that washed off the Spanish Armada that were wrecked on the coast here were either dumpy onion-shaped bottles, you know, like an old-fashioned pirate bottle almost, or they were square, fat, dumpy-like ones like this. And this is actually an olive oil bottle that we've repurposed. Um, so it, but it tells a story of a sense of time, which is, you know, when savory drinks were, were the, the only thing that was available. So... Um, it, it well, it's very distinctive. I mean, you, you have what, six different seaweeds in it. Yes, well, six conventional botanicals with five seaweeds. So five seaweeds. Yeah. So you have sugar kelp, which I know a few other guys use. You have dulse, which has been used, um, I think, by one other person, two other companies. But um, we use paradine moss, which we vapor infuse because we we try to macerate it in the still, and we we won't be doing that again. Um, so we vapor infuse that. It has dulamon itself, which is a seaweed that is believed to be blessed by God because it grew so fast during the famine era you could harvest it and then eat it and then come back a week later and it would be there again. And uh, and then pepper dulse, which is known as the truffle of the sea. Um, and literally, I, I cut it, it goes like this high. It's absolutely tiny. Um, so you're on your hands and knees on the rock as the tide goes out and then you get chased back in again. So, yeah. um, well, dare yeah. I say you went in at the deep end and, and you, know, <laughs> you got very technical on it as well. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that can just... Um, take you further when you're going through your whiskey production. So, but you, you went that stage further with this one and you went and did a one at the, for the 57% ABV. Yeah, so when, <laughs> yeah. So it, 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 I suppose you take this, the Armada story on another level. So there's a cross in the middle of that label that says Santa Ana. Yeah. And that's, that was a, the, where the Ducosa Santa Ana sank. So that was a, 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 an Andalusian hulk that was part of the Armada. It sank there. The commander, a guy called Don Alonso de Leva, was from Rioja. So we brought Rioja barrels over and aged the gin. <clears throat> so me. we bottled it at 57% Navy strength. But if it's an Armada one, it's surely it's got to be Armada strength. Yeah. Um, and, and we leave it in barrel for about 12 weeks. So just long enough to pick up the wine notes, uh, but not long enough for the juniper and the oak to fight. Um, Does it pick up the colour? It picks up a hint of colour. You get a sort of slight pinkness to it. So it's um, 
it's, I hesitate to call it a pink gin, but it is, it has a gentle pink hue to a rose gold kind of hue. Um, and because Moira's from Zimbabwe, the, the kind of little hint of Africa in there is, uh, if you look at the, mirror, the label in a mirror, it's actually a map of Zimbabwe. So, um, yeah. So a lot of thought gone into um, the branding and the labeling and the history and the linking all those elements together. How important are they? I mean, they're absolutely crucial to us because, uh, well, I suppose first of all, we're nerds and, um, and so we kind of enjoy that. But I think also, uh, if you think about all of us distillers, you know, distillers, distilleries, that we all have a sense of place. And that's absolutely clear, you know, and whether it's nickel in, uh, in, down in, in Connemara or whether it's Loch Lee or Blackwater or Dingle, we all have a sense of place. And ours is, you know, the southwest south of the Gore Peninsula. So that, that's absolutely key. But the thing that I suppose that I like to think about in a brand context is if you can link it to a sense of time, it kind of helps you tell the story. It helps you focus on how the whiskies or the gin should taste. Um, and, and so, you know, Dunamon is, is a gin that's kind of set in that Armada era. So a lot of this sort of, you know, bottles would have been wax sealed. Just the top is stamped with a, uh, with the, with the fingerprint of the mountain, the contours of the mountain as a fingerprint. All of these things kind of put you in a sense of time, which then we can be hoping we can kind of execute against. And with whiskies, you know, with the silky, it's kind of pre-prohibition, the style that was there before, you know, before Irish whiskey kind of lost lost its dominant position. You see, I mean, here is the, the silk, and obviously your first whiskey, and one you must be really proud of, but what I love is the link and the research, and even the name Silky, you know, the labeling, the iconic mermaid there, and they all tie in very, very nicely together, but uh, I think this came out, when did this come out, 2016 or 2015? Yeah, 2016, originally. Yeah, January 16th, we had a launch here in, in Carrick. And I quite, quite a, yeah, you were, you, you were up in, um, in Evelyn's, uh, what was then John the Miner's bar. But, um, and it, the liquid has evolved significantly since then. So, um, we always kind of wanted to do uh, something challenging from a kind of design perspective and, and probably wanted to challenge much more on the liquid side than we were ever able to do. Um, and didn't have access to the whiskies we do now. So, you know, one of the things that worked very well was the design style, kind of the, the kind of very pared back labeling and all the rest of it kind of lent, stood out on shelf. And I think that went very well. The, the fact, I think that we were telling this very singular smoky story and then not delivering on it in the, in the whiskey, I think was an issue. And, um, and that feedback, you know, we, much as I didn't like hearing it, it's kind of, you've got to take it on board. And, and we, um, so 20, 2019, we got into a position with Great Northern where we were able to get hold of, you know, genuinely heated Irish whiskey, so smoky Irish whiskey, and we could then start to tell a tale. And so the, the brand we have there is, is the legendary Silky, so that has 4% of the blend is heated, just a little bit of seasoning, almost nothing on the nose. It's just when you're on your, you drink it, it's the mids mid part of the tongue and it starts to warm up you then get this hint of smoke to it sort of like a dry ashy kind of smoke which is absolutely kind of where we wanted to be and it's close to the center of irish whiskey today i guess yeah i have to say uh, of all the whiskeys that i have had uh, for cocktails i think this one for some reason lends itself particularly well to whiskey sours 
Okay. Yeah, I really, uh, and I remember on that night, I mean, I had more than one. <laughs> That's why they were getting better. That's <laughs> Certainly the best whiskey sours I've ever tried. So. Well, it's not. That brings me really down to uh, the point that um, you have Deirdre there with you as well. Um, That's right. So we're, we're, um, we're, we're very lucky because you know, the, the, the team are ostensibly all, all local characters except uh, some of the newer guys um, coming in are not. But, um, but Dee was working for Richmond Brands um, down in Dublin and... As you know, she, she was, I think, the world champion cocktail, yeah. party cocktail champion in 2014. Um, and, and we had a conversation with Dee and sort of, you know, asked if she would come back and help with our marketing and help bring the brands to life, in, in, you know, particularly in that on-trade context. And, and thankfully she did, and she's been with us ever since. And, you know, we're now in more than 30 countries and, you know, rolling out you know, all of the states of America. And, and we've got kind of, Drinks that are versatile and work in an on-trade environment and can cocktail well and can do those kind of things and, and, and Dee can help us showcase those. And then we have, um, uh, and we're kind of trying to build now the sort of toolkits for how we, um, how we take these drinks even further to make them even, you know, build the stories out even more. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we know as well that at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't have a done it all accent, neither does Moira. And, um, I, and, you know, it's, it's fantastic that we were able to give jobs to people in the area, but also people like Dee who, who wanted to come home are able yeah. to come home and work in the industry they love. And that's a fantastic thing. I suppose that brings me one point closer to uh, the one I wanted to address was uh, COVID situation in terms of what it's done and how it's affected your business and how you've reacted to it. Just before that, I see uh, Dennis is asking a question. Do uh, you see Irish more as a smoky whiskey than a PD one? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I suppose we focus very... Uh, I suppose the language around Pete, for me, is owned by Scott. If we talk about Pete, it's just everyone immediately goes to Isla. They immediately go to TCP, Iodine, big challenge, big robust whiskies. And for me, we can tell a, a smoky story and use smoke as a flavor and talk about what it actually delivers to a, to a consumer, to a drinker, rather than Pete, which is a, an input to the production process, if you like. So I just find the, the whole Pete head thing really challenging and so I kind of don't I don't want to, to fight with uh, or to, I don't want to be in a sort of head on locking horns with these guys I want to come at it from a different angle because that, I think that gives us more leverage and more opportunity for telling our story um, in, a, in, a, in a kind of better and more engaging way so but it is it's something I recognize we end up having to discuss because the Pete heads want to discuss it yeah. but, but it is for me a conversation about smoke and bringing smoke, a journey through smoky Irish whiskey and the flavour as a more interesting case for us yeah. to play. If I'm not mistaken, James, am I starting to see a trend of Scotch becoming more smoky or offering more smoky offerings than they used to? Absolutely. And, and actually, Johnny Walker started that. So if you look at um, the, the Diageo and you go back sort of 15 years, um, I would argue that, um, and I haven't, I've done some research, but I wouldn't say I've done, and lately I've heard of it, but if you look at, um, uh, uh, if you look at the way Johnny Walker has told the story for, you know, the, the, the aspirational drink is actually a, a Johnny Walker Black, which is a smoky, a smoky, a beated Scotch ski. They've made Johnny Walker red, peatier. They've made black and white 
and all of the kind of feeder in brands, the value brands that exist in emerging markets, they are all now pleated in a way they never were before. Um, and that ink is Diageo very deliberately laddering up, um, laddering up people into kind of Johnny Walker, Johnny Walker Black and taking it on there from there. So, so I think that that's a very, a very, uh, specific kind of thing that Johnny Walker has done. And then outside of that, I think that people like to flirt with with Petered. And so what you've got is that Isla is kind of is what Isla's probably fifteen percent, is it, of the total single malt category? So it's not the biggest bit, but it's the most talked about bit. And and everyone kind of wants to sort of dip into that and see if they can leverage it to you know become the, the less challenging one, the easier one. I think it's well, I mean, you've got space. three you've got I think three the distilleries, if not more, are producing not non petered whiskey there as well. Yeah. And and that's probably more interesting. Uh, as a development to going forward. Um, do you think There's Paul, another question in from somebody I, I don't recognize at all. Do um, you also yeah. <laughs> give you that leverage? Uh, absolutely. And so we were actually, uh, we cooked our peated pot still today. Um, so using peated malt and, and green barley. And, and I'm, so today was just a test run to see that the heat exchanges work. But I have uh, peated, peated malt green barley that's obviously unpeated and then I've got peated oats coming on Friday um, so I think peated pot still for me is is definitely an interesting a really interesting place to play yeah. and the, you know within our cask scheme I've already got my own cask ready to be laid down and it will be a peated pot still for sure we have the functionality within the distillery that they'll all, they'll all be initially triple distilled yeah yeah. And then to take this a little bit further, and I think I'm missing one of the one, one of the silkies you did, but I'll come back to it. Yeah. So this is the dark silky, and I love the branding on this. I don't know why, maybe it's just the color, but uh, and yeah. certainly in terms of branding and imagery, I, I love it. And uh, this is a bit more peated. It is. So, so the the blend is four percent of the previous uh, legendary silky is peated, and dark silky fifteen percent of it is peated. And I think one of the things that silky is kind of doing quite well uh, is that it it's sort of bridging between styles. So there's a, a heavy component of virgin grain, um, virgin grain whiskey and virgin casks uh, in silky. Uh, so in, ordinary, in regular silky or legendary silky, it's fifteen percent of the blend is in uh, virgin oak cask, which gives it its color and some of the oiliness. And then in the, the dark silky, 15% of it is a triple distilled peated um, Irish whiskey, the single malt but, but matured in sherry cask. 15% is uh, double distilled in bourbon casks. And then the balance, the 70% is is grain whiskey, maize based because it's great northern, which has got that kind of popcorn buttery sweetness. And um, and then you've got a virgin oak cask, which makes it almost sort of caramel-like. So, so the the thing for me is that you know, especially using younger whiskies, which we are, then you need you need to be able to hang that smoky flavour on on really good things. And um, a virgin grain in silk, silky is a, is a absolute start. Um, and and we were very lucky. We had a bottle ready for Paddy's Day, what eighteen months ago, and and of course that that was when lockdown hit, so we never launched. Yeah. Um, I mean, the board all got together. We kind of quickly said, "Right, what are we going to do?" And you, you kind of have that ugly moment where you start thinking about, "Well, if I'm going to cut, what are we going to cut?" And, you know, and then you think about people and the order that people are going to have to go. And you have some some pretty ugly conversations. But we then actually said, "Well, you know what? We're going to cut all of the costs we can to the bone, but we're going to go hard selling." And 
and we went online with Dark Silky and it got picked up on Twitter and I think the kind of Friday night dram, Saturday night sit, the Sunday night sup guys just got behind it and at a time no one else really launched anything and we were there from the beginning of lockdown for sure and that's and i think we got a bit of a free run with it and it was distinctive and different and i think all of that played played pretty well and then kind of from there the, the sort of international pieces where dave wood has been um you know driving the us and, and bart discard and he's been driving the other half of the world um those guys have been you know working working on shoe leather really hard. And, and, and so you're missing, you're, you're only missing a few states now in the US, you're missing Dakota and Hawaii. Yeah, North and South Dakota and Hawaii are the only ones that we don't have a, a formal agreement in place, which is yeah, quite something. Yeah, yeah you want to Hawaii, come here. Yeah, no. But the other thing is, you brought out um, some task strength variations of these, and they just disappeared. I mean, yeah. they're done within a few days, if not... Faster. Yeah, it's it's a very strange thing. I I am um, I probably if I'm honest, I wasn't uh, convinced by it, the the car strength idea at all. And um, you know, particularly I know Silky. I mean, I, you can see I've got ice in mine here. Um, yeah. I uh, I kind of felt like you know, sixty four percent alcohol was just really would people buy that? I was just couldn't couldn't get my head around it. And David Mara tortured me um, and told me I was wrong. And and then I said, well, let's do a small release and we'll see what happens. And we bottled it and you know, I think we did 210 bottles or something. And, and it sold out in 24 hours. And, it, and I was sitting there going, my goodness, this, maybe there is something in this. And, um, and so we don't do it all the time. Um, we, I suppose they're still kind of us. Uh, I think they're set sort of 80 euros, so they're not hopefully breaking the bank here. And, and if you look at the, the secondary market, they're certainly oh, performing, performing well. On, yeah. yeah, they're performing well on the auction site. So, and we, you know, you have that internal conversation that says, should you sell it for more? And and you know, I think we're very clear that you know, we know what we know the whiskies that are in here. We think they're good value at the 80 euros, and 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 frankly. You know, I'd rather people drank them and came back and bought more. That's what that's what we want, rather than sort of um, kind of driving either the collector market or kind of driving a poor value play. I don't think that's the right thing for us to do. And I've probably just be, beaten out of town in Donegal if I start trying to tell people to pay a hundred euros for a bottle of whiskey. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a dilemma. But I mean, it's a dilemma that not everybody has. So I mean, it's it's a good dilemma to have. Right. But uh, yeah, I'm missing one here. There was a red. You missed the red silky. Yeah, actually, I was going to have a bottle here, but I, it's in my cupboard. But I don't know. I've got one bottle with yeah, that much left in it of my own. Um, so so the red silky was. Um, it was done for sort of two reasons. One, we wanted something specific for the crowdfunding, so we yeah. did um, so we did a Rioja only for this for the crowdfunding. And I was also convinced that um, the Rioja finishes on whiskey that I've seen are very very sweet. I mean, strawberries and cream kind of sweet. Yeah. And and I wanted to bring in a drier element to it, so we went and got some Ribera del Duero casks as well. And, and and then finished finished the two and then put them together and and actually the, the combination was so much better than the individual. Yeah. Um, so so and Red Silky yeah it was probably five five days on the online shop. It was all sold out. I think in two days we had all of our distributors uh, and most of them without tasting it kind of just went yep I'll take that and um, yeah. 
Conversation shop will be a great food paint. No, I think it. I think it does bring different flavors. It's it's got an earthy peatiness to it, which I think works really well. I think if you put ice in it, it changes the nature of it. And because I always drink with ice um, for pleasure, um, then we, we deliberately blend with Brian down at Great Northern to make sure that they work well with sort of with a drop of water but also with ice so it's for me that dark silky has this dry smokiness inspired by the taste of granddad's pipe you know when you start, start down with a kid in the morning there was a cold ashy pipe then you sucked on it and you felt really big yeah. and you had that sweet tobacco ashy thing I, I wanted that in a drink and i think we've got that and then when you put ice in it it kind of transformed into something a bit more earthy and, and kind of you know and, and just different and i think that allows you to kind of do different things i I love dark silky with um, with Korean spices on my prawns before I put them on a barbecue, which is probably horrific for most people. But um, that's how I marinate our prawns and and then fry on the bride. Yes, that has been done in our in our house as well with some rather with some rather good whiskey on both sides. But uh, what can you do? Um, no. Yeah, it wasn't under my control. But look, I mean, you have this you've taken this peaty route. Um, and obviously, you haven't gone down the constant route yet, but that is where you want to go. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I suppose how how we're going to get there is um, the like with with this. Um, so yeah, this is a mock up of your Ardara distillery. Which oh, that's the old one, so just that's the old. I, I see the, a later one with double sided uh, angles, so there's no rounded roof on the other one. Yeah, so this was the the site we had in in, in Carrick in, in the parish of Glen Common Kill, that ultimately got um, yeah, someone squatted on the land and then dragged us through the courts. And we ultimately won the court case, but it was too late to save that distillery because we already moved on to another site and got another planning commission, which is our draw. So um, yeah, terrible shame. Terrible shame. But let's let's show them the one that uh, you have now. So obviously this is the the uh, spirit site. So yes, yeah, and it's foresight. I think foresight is a turnkey solution for you. And we had Richard on the show earlier, and he was talking yes. about the ability to create you know bespoke uh, turnkey solutions. What was your logic with going with foresight? So not the cheapest and. Um, was at the time they weren't the, the easiest to get a hold of. No, I suppose it, it, I've known um, Richard Senior and, and Richard now Richard Junior for a number of years, and they the beauty I think of Forsyth for us in terms of you know, we were still raising money when we elected for, to go with Forsyth, and, and you know you ultimately underpin the business. Um, by going with you know a Forsyth, there are other great distillery manufacturers, but you know with Forsyth on your ticket, it, it says that you're serious, that you're building a kind of really substantial piece of kit, and you're underpinning a brand that you know people want to believe in. So, so the, the other thing with Forsyth was that they were willing to kind of engage with me on the concept that if if my grandfather as an illicit distiller had turned up today and would he recognize the process we had in place? So I wanted to be specifically all grains in 
and we are uh, so we don't have a mash tun. We only have, we go straight into a two ton cooker, and we use the cooker for malt, and we use it for um, uh, for the pot still today. We from the cookers, it goes through a number of heat exchangers, so we've got a massive amount of heat recovery um, stuff going on. But it goes into stainless steel fermenters, and then uh, there's a fermenters in the background, and then into three copper uh, copper pots, a ten thousand liter wash still with an offset net, and then two the intermediate still is five thousand, and the spirit still is three thousand six hundred liters. So on a double that's shift, big enough for a, yeah, that's big enough. Yeah, I'm concerned it's not big enough, but that's probably my level of ambition. But the, it's, uh, it's ultimately, I guess, it will produce sort of 500,000 LPA, um, so 3,000 odd barrels a year, like on the configuration you see in front of you. Um, but the, there is space on the, the, you can see the window on the right hand of this, the side, because there's space there for a further three fermenters. So we could go to a 24-7 and take it up to... Um, 650 LPA, 650,000 LPA, and really love it hard. Um, the are in the window, kind of overlooking the village of Ardras, and the village of Ardras is literally, um, 150 meters from that gable. So we're, we're in a very fortunate place because it's a town, it's a festival town, it's got a real kind of tourist vibe about it. It's, um, the, the local community have got right behind us and been so supportive. And, and all of the contractors, so Kahal Dohri, the local contractor, has built the frame and, and the, the, all of the kind of ancillary services. Uh, Hugh Gavigan is a local contractor who, who did all of the groundworks and the flood mitigation stuff, plus the new barrel store. Um, the electrician, Shane Mulraney, local man as well. So we've gone local wherever we possibly can. Um, and for sites have come inside and built this sort of tank, as you can see, with inside it. And it gives peace of mind because there's decisions, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer, but not, you know, I'm not a practicing engineer. So there's a lot of stuff that I've kind of made decisions that are conceptual rather than practical. And the sites have made them practical for us. But what's is, the um, time from, from construction starting to get to this point here? What is it, just over a year? Uh, just under a year, actually. So it was 51 weeks we had from the first pile going in until the first run of the wash still, and it's 52 weeks exactly to the first spirit coming off. Yeah, what I loved actually what you had was the live webcam. I see yeah. the webcam is still live, actually, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, after the crowdfunding, um, we had lots of requests from the guys that, that supported us with the crowd in the, in the crowd feed uh, exercise, wanting you know lots of photos all the time of what was going on, and um, you know we thought that actually the, the live web, live streaming the webcam was the way of getting um, getting them a kind of constant feed of what was going on. Unfortunately, we didn't have power on the site until quite recently, so we weren't able to move. The, um, to move this, the cameras inside, but now that we've got, well, you know, we've got broadband and electricity and the rest of it on site, we can now look at streaming that instead, so you can actually see the distilling going on. Yeah, and it's quite an achievement, and it's great that you need local workers there as well. Just in terms of the fermenters here, yes. Um, what's your typical fermentation time? It's well, still it's, early. it's still early, really, and. Um, yeah, the thing is, with, the, with us being grains in, there's a there's a risk that it could be a bit citrusy, and that we could get some oily character out of the husks. So at the moment, we 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 want to target sort of seventy two hours. You know, with um, you kind okay. of you know you've got you should have most of your kind of fermentation really undone within sort of forty forty four hours, and then then it's kind of what happens afterwards. So you know, we'll 
we'll now make those decisions over the next few months to, to yeah. sort of really try and get to the liquid we want. I mean, the stuff, the spirit that came off the stills today was just soft and sweet and smoky. It was just gorgeous. And the whole place smells like a distillery now. <laughs> so it's, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, there's a greeting from David, David Harlan in Tasmania. Wow. Well, what time it is. It's either very early or very... But, yeah. It's very early. Yeah. Yes. So very on the Irish whiskey. Uh, one of the photos. Yeah, that's it in terms of photos, which is probably uh, enough for our readers. But look, um, there were a lot of things, decisions, I suppose, that had to be made uh, along, along the way. And you put in a very strong management team, if you like, or investment team. So you've got uh, the two uh, investors from Sad Miller, right? Yeah. Uh, and James Keith, who has uh, experience in fundraising and so forth. Yeah. What was your decision? based on to decide to go crowdsourced. So um, I'm just sending you one of the photos as well, <laughs> Sergio, so um, you'll get one in a second. But the, um, we elected very early on to try and make this a completely retail type you know, fundraising. And, and that meant that you know, effectively we would, we would first go to friends, then to family, then to the fans. Um, and we kind of fished we fished the friends and family uh, yeah. really hard and, and we've got a, a really fantastic back, a group of backers that have kind of come in for us and you know within that we have kind of guys who are drinks industry guys who are just like you said Sad Miller guys they're main board directors we've got the CFO we've got the legal council Dominic and CEO. John isn't it that's yeah. right Dom DeLorenzo John Davidson really wise calm heads nothing phases them uh, I think the first few conversations we had, I did have to stop them talking about trying to do things in billions and, and get them down to millions. <laughs> but um, they, they very quickly kind of got the, the pace that we needed to operate at, the, the kind of challenge that was needed, the support that was needed. Um, and James Keith, um, you know, has been a friend now for a number of years. James has got a career um, in construction, but specifically in rough fundraising for new companies. And James committed to essentially raise the to, to try and help me and more raise the money but to remain in control of the business and and so it's really been designed that way we've got this mix as i say of drinks industry guys local businessmen have done really well and then want to give back and want to see something develop in the area um, and so that's been really supportive and then sort of friends and family but you can only fish in that pond for so far, so much. And we, we kind of got to the point where we felt like we either needed to go to institutional funds to go and get some. And, and we have got um, Asahi invested in us a few years ago. So Asahi have put in some money with us. Um, and they're fantastic partners, to be honest. They've been absolutely superb. Um, but the, the sort of last point of the retail for us or the, the sort of next phase of kind of democratizing the ownership and trying to give people a chance to come in on, on, a, on a level of sort of 80 quid was by going to Crowdcube and because it's not a vehicle that's really it's sort of used in Ireland very often. So you had to go to the UK to do it. Um, we have a branch office in the UK, which meant we have EIS in the UK and we have EIIS in our shares here in Ireland. So we have, we're compatible with both to make them sort of tax efficient. And, 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 and then we went, you have a big decision about how do you go to Crowdcube and do you can crowdfund in COVID? You know, people are sitting at home, people have been made redundant, they've been furloughed. Um, and if it doesn't go well, it's a very, very public fail. So 
Um, there are a lot of lot of kind of conversations around that, but, but essentially it feels like we, you know, particularly for Moira and James and myself, um, it feels like almost every conversation we've had with anybody has been a, almost an investor conversation. So we're almost in the dragon's den for the whole of the last five years. Then Crowdcube went live, and it, we just found our voice. I think we, we, we couldn't hide behind the parapet anymore. You had to stand up and say, "This is what we're about." And the, the sort of community aspect of the story, I think, resonated. And well, it was an optimistic story and a, you know, a positive yeah. story at a time, I guess, that was needed and it's resonated with people. Yeah. And I mean, it was ultimately, the, I think it was the third biggest raise in the UK in the, in food and drink and the fifth biggest in Europe. Um, and it was, it was humbling to see it kind of work the way it did. Kind of addictive as well. Um, but we've made some crazy decisions, Sergius. We, we committed to make sure that we responded to everybody who put a question in within four hours. Day or night. And, uh, and we know it's, we know it's a hold to that. And we also know it said we're going to be completely transparent. So we'll, 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 you ask a difficult question, you'll get, you'll get the open answer, you know, what's and all. And, and I think that also stood us in good stead. Yeah, I mean, it was a risk, a big risk, but I, I think it's a risk that's paid off not only in terms of the finance raised, but it was a great marketing vehicle as well. The fact that it did succeed. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it also got picked up, I think, as you say, it was a good news story, and so it got picked up by Sky News, and it got picked up by a few people like that, and so we got some exposure we probably wouldn't have got otherwise, and um, and, and now you can see it, you know, a year, you know, less than a year later, it's kind of up, and um, you can you can really, you know, give people every reason to believe in, in the next step, I and mean, what we're going to do next, and how we take the business forward from here. One of the more, if I don't mind, uh, one of the more interesting task programs um, in the sense that one is uh, sensibly priced, but um, I think you're the only one, if not one of very few, that uh, are confident enough to offer a buyback scheme uh, as well. Yeah, well, I think the cost is. They've got a bad rap, I think, you know, of late because there are some charlatans out there. But, um, you know, for us, it's always been this is about a, a, a club. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're only a piece of history and you're joining us on the journey. Um, and we will celebrate. So around the base of the stills, the, around the spirit still is the, the names of all the investors are being carved into wooden blocks around there. And then around the intermediate still is all the cast owners. And then around the crowdfunding, it's the, some of the crowd food guys are going around there. So you kind of want to recognize people that have done it. But also the tasks for us are, you know, you're part of the story. You know, we call it Shanaki because you don't, um, I don't think you buy a barrel because you want 350 bottles of whiskey. I think you want to tell Not a story likely. of it. So yeah. you are a Shanaki and, um, and, and for us, that was the piece of be, be, be with us. You know, it's part of our Biggie Lynn program, which is be with us. And, and it's about, being part of the story and helping and knowing that you're helping to contribute to the, the development of this business in Donegal for the long term. And so the, the questions that we kind of put to ourselves was, right, well, what do you need to know? So in the same spirit as the Crowdcube, we, um, so it's completely transparent in the brochure. It tells you exactly what it costs, not just the cost of buying a cask for 6,000 euros, but, but actually the bottling cost, the VAT, the storage, you know, everything is in there. So you can see, and it's all added up. So you can see that I think it costs 42.31. Um, if you get 350 bottles, it will cost you 42.31 a bottle. That's the absolute cost at the end of it. Um, and we'll take, you know, we'll, be, we'll happily bottle it for you and deal with that. But we also thought that actually if we were to do, I don't want to, we're not selling it as an investment, but actually if you are in the scheme 
and at five years you don't want the barrel, then first of all, you have to try and sell it. So we will help you try and sell it because I'm convinced there'll be a waiting list of people wanting pieces of Irish whiskey. If you still can't, you know, if you, if you find three of those guys and, and can't sell, then, or, um, then we will buy it back off you for a, a compound 3% a year. Um, so it's more than you're getting in the banks. It's not a great deal, but it is more than you're getting in the banks at the moment. And hopefully that underwrites it for people and gives them confidence in what we Well, yeah, it's a confidence builder as well. Yeah. But I, what I do like about it, and I'm not, you know, I've said it out in public before, I'm not a massive fan of class programs as an investment vehicle. Uh, or no. or them being sold heavily as an investment vehicle is what I, I abhor. Uh, what, what I like about this game is it is very transparent and I think the effect is visible directly. You know, there was a crowdfunding, the distillery was built, you know, you're getting the money for the cast, some other element is going and I, I have to applaud you on that. So in terms oh, thank of cast programs, it, it Shall I put you down for one then, Sergio? Yeah, I'll take two. <laughs> <laughs> what was it, 43, 41 a barrel or a bottle? Uh, I'll have a favourite. But it, Someday. If you're right. It, you know, it, it, they shouldn't be sold as investment schemes. They are, they are about being part of the club, knowing that you're contributing to the development of the business and, and keeping the jobs local and, and keeping the business local. And, and that's a good thing to be doing. And at the end of it, you will get you know, 300 odd barrels of, uh, of peated single more, and, and I suppose, or peated pot still. The, and, and you, you only have to look at the wholesale prices of peated versus unpeated to know that, you know, they, they, it's, it's valuable liquids. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the different mash bills, the different recipes for the pot, uh, the pot still that you're going to be doing? Are you going to be doing what's considered compliant, uh, or non-compliant, or are you just, well, I suppose uh, you know, this is this is where I'm probably on a bit of thin ice being you know, a member of the IWA, but we're non-compliant. So the the, the single malt, um, although our test batches are all being made with, with Scottish malt because we couldn't get any Donegal malt, I've actually our pot still is um, made with Donegal barley, and we will from February we'll be moving on to Donegal sourced for all of our, uh, our grain, which would be fantastic. So it really underpins the story. Um, so the single malt, heated single malt. More than 65 parts a million, where we get to and from 65 up is really about how we can work with the stills and work out how, you know, what, where the flavor comes to, where we want it to come to. Um, then the pot still recipe is a, is a 50, 30, 20. So 50% more, 30% barley, 20% oats. Okay, so and, you, and the and the and the malt and the oats are both peated. So um, in fact, the peated oats are coming from Irish craft malts. So, yeah, out until there, is it? Yeah, me, me. Yeah, we were down there. But so Paul, I think from from Irish craft malts was with us. Um, yeah, is I that think an issue? I, I don't. Well, I don't believe so. I mean, I think um, I think Finon said to me some time ago that that's pretty close to the original Powers Mash Bill. Um, oh no, in terms of, oh. it's going to be an issue in terms of, you know, a lot of people now are looking for peated, uh, yeah. to get into the peated, you know, maybe it's a one-off, maybe it's a small part of their overall business, uh, for you it's everything. Um, yeah. Sourcing peated oats, peated, you know, peated malty, you know, it's going to be a, a difficult thing. Do we have the capacity in Ireland to produce enough peated? Um, so no. So the, at the moment, the, we're, we're talking to suppliers where the barley from Donegal will go over to Scotland to be um, malted over there, and we'll send 
uh, turf over with it. And, and yeah. then it'll come back, which I think, if I'm right, Waterford have also done, actually. Um, but it's important for me that we get, you know, the, the turf effect is one that's local to us, so it's sweeter. Yeah. Right, you know, all of that kind of good stuff. And um, so that's one aspect of it. But but actually, you know, in conversation with the sort of farmers of Donegal, there are more farmers switching from feed malt, free food barley into, into distillers malt. Um, and... You know, talking to Irish craft malts, they can't produce enough for us right now. But I think the ambition in the market certainly is that if there's sufficient demand and you know people like us commit to yeah. local sourcing, then then people will invest in the, in, in the, the capex required to build these things. So, so I'm you know passionately hoping that we will see the kind of you know, not not us as a kind of a, an outlier, but our, us as a at the vanguard of kind of that smoky's generation and, and the other guys will be coming in and doing it and I think more along the West Coast will try and do it and, and, and I think I've quite a few of the guys around Belfast are doing it. So the demand will be there. It's just you've got to get committed in, you know, that we've got to show the commitment to those local monsters that allow them to invest. Yeah. I have a question in here from uh, Jonathan who is in Argentina. Good evening, Don. Uh, so he's pushing Irish whiskey in Argentina. He's doing a great job. But uh, will there be another round of crowd coming? Yeah, very likely. So um, the, the the next round of funding will, will kick off next March. Um, so our shareholder agreements are structured in a way that means we have to all of our existing shareholders have preemption right. So so we will go to those first, but we will we will very likely go to back to Crowdcube for probably a June a June round uh, of crowdfunding. Um and and yeah, we've yet to design all of the details of it, but it's um it's certainly you know, we need to fund the business going forward. There's there's plans for the visitor aspects of it, there's there's expansion plans for the gym, there's support for Silky, there's a lot of big ideas and big plans to go forward and that um, and the, the funding will go towards that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned tourism there or the visitor center and I think you've made a very conscious and admirable uh, decision not to do certain things that would traditionally be you know, associated with a visitor center. Do you want to yes. expand on that with us please? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm actually just, I think Jonathan actually may have been one of our Crowdfunders, actually. Okay. So, yeah. So, so we'll find out in a minute, I'm sure. But um, the um, so the question was around the fund, the visit aspects. Yeah. So I, I suppose our kind of very clear idea, and, and has been all the way through, is that hospitality is something you need to be very good at, first of all. And you know, we're very fortunate that the distillery. Has it, we'll have a footbridge leading from the town into the, into the distillery over the river, which would be beautiful. And we're in a town that has a, multi, a multitude of kind of good hospitality offerings. So we will not be offering as part of the distillery kind of cafe, restaurant, or anything like that. So, so there will be a, our visitor experiences come and see the distillery and come see the distillery, learn about the, you know, why we're here, what we do, how we do it, and, and varying levels of tour, depending on how much detail you want to go into. Um, you do the whiskey distillery first, you will then go into the gin distillery and do the gin story as well, and then into the, the tasting bar where you can get to taste all the products. Um, but apart from a coffee for a driver, I don't think there will be 
anything else in the way of hospitality because I think you know when you've got when you're in part of a town it's about not competing with that town for for that tourist dollar it's about completing the town's offer to that mm-hmm. tourist so if we can if we can keep people for an hour then you know there's Eddie Doherty or Triona Design and their their weaving businesses will keep them for another hour and well that's that's the morning or the afternoon gone and so now you need coffee or you need dinner or lunch or you need a bed or so. You know, we don't see our role as being one of kind of trying to offer the, the a destination. You come to us and then you drive on to somewhere else. It's drive into the village, park in the village, come and spend some time with us, but then go and spend some time with the weavers, the craft guys, the restaurateurs, the, the bakers. That you know, we've got so many things you can do in the area. If we can extend the amount of time people spend in the area, then they'll they'll spend more time. They'll discover more things and they'll they'll fall in love with the place and come back. Yeah. I mean, that's been a fairly new and um, rare form of tourism that's been done in terms of business centre. I have to say, it makes complete sense when you when you think about it. That it's a uh, replenishing the area. I think, yeah, I think it's 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 kind of logical from a from me anyway because I don't think I don't think what we're more, um, will tell you she's a she's like ninety percent introverted so she is the shyest person you'll ever want to meet so the idea of her being uh, showcasing stuff would, would horrify her and and from my perspective you just I know from working in bars and restaurants it's just you've got to be cut for it and you're not. So, so let's not try and be cut for it. Let's do what we want to do, which we're good at, and, and hopefully that'll be making, you know, making great, great pieces of whiskies and, you know, and, and savoury gins. And I know Moira's got a couple of new, new variants that she's developing at the moment for Andulaman. And, and then we're part of that community rather than competing with the community. And we don't want to do that. So, yeah. so I think it's, it's a logical place for a lot of people. How have you been perceived then in general or by the community there? I must be at the beginning. Huh? I think I think it's um I think at first there's a certain level of skepticism that you know is it is it really happening you know will it really happen do they have enough money and and there's a there's always a couple of naysayers that get in the way and who have more airtime than you do but we kind of just said let's just keep our heads down let's just keep driving forward um you know we lost the site the guys in Ardra. You know, when we we found the second site through through our architects, but since that point, the community there, I think, is a town that has hospitality and festivals at its heart. So they see the they see the value of it in a you know very clearly, and we've probably done some things better than we did last time. So we you know, we shared the plans of the distillery with the immediate neighbours before we shared them with anybody else. And then we had a big public open evening where anyone could ask any question they want. And that meant that when the planning commission went in, or the application went in, there were zero objections. So then no objections at all, which it must be unheard of. Um, so I think we've, been, we've had nothing but good feeling come towards us um, since we've since we you know we've really started building and the whole I think people see the opportunity. I think what they're now seeing is, you know, as you said, you know, the distillery is big enough and it kind of gives you a sense of scale of the ambition um, and the potential. Um, and I think that is kind of turning a few heads and people kind of I think even more engaged with it, which I think is a really good thing. And you know, the one Atlantic Way gets a, an awful lot of uh, traffic to be like, but I mean, this has got to be a definite stop on that now, and surely for that, it's going to be a great uh, 
Oh, there it is. It's going to be a great facility. I, you know, I, I think it, it, it's specifically, yes, because there's a, the distilleries in our draw, but, you know, the, if you look at a, a tourist moving around the Shindley Peninsula, basically, from if you're from Donegal Town to Glenties and you draw a line there, the whole of the peninsula is where people spend their time. And it, it's incumbent on all of us not to sort of get too sucked into kind of parish politics. And, you know, this one, I, I don't want them to get ahead because that means we're not going ahead. I think it's how do we fill two days rather than a day for a tourist in the area? And, and how do we give them different things that they can do indoors, outdoors, um, you know, history, historical, current, whatever. But we need to think about that, that our area with, and, and championing the kind of history and the, and, and the culture in a way that is engaging and that people can dip in and out of, but they can dip in and out of it in different places. So, so I don't see the kind of parish boundaries that, that lots of people see. And, and, and I suppose that's because, you know, we've kind of come home as opposed to being born into it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, um, here's John Burke. Good evening, John. Nice to hear from you. And uh, he's just uh, reiterating the, the sentiments about uh, keeping the businesses local actively as well and being part of the community. I think that's what really resonates with people, you know, and perhaps being, you know, smaller size business maybe makes it a little bit easier to do that rather than. You know, being a big yeah. that comes in doing it, but yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's true, definitely. But I would say as well, I, I kind of sometimes wonder that if I was, you know, not young Doherty coming back with big ideas, but um, but I don't know, like a, say, say a German who had the same kind of ambition and the money. I think sometimes being from here but not from here kind of thing gets in the way sometimes. Yeah, no, I can. It reminds you a little bit of the field, I suppose. <laughs> well, I'm not going near waterfalls, so. Yeah. Well, look, in terms of jobs, obviously you are creating jobs, and I think I saw something reported that up to 40 jobs that you direct. Is that correct? Correct. That's right. So that the 40 jobs is the kind of for the business in the round. You know, we have, um, I think we have 12 or 13 people employed at the moment in, in Carrick in the bottling lines where we, so we have the gin distillery in Carrick. So we have yeah. a team down there that looks after sort of, um, distilling, bottling, uh, and, and, and logistics dispatch and, and sort of the brand teams as well as well sort of based there. Um, so, and you can see then that, you know, we're recruiting right now for two yeah. sort of two, two, two distillers to run one, one for each. One, one distiller. Well, no, we've got a head distiller and he wants two distillers, one for each shift. And yeah, then no, I, I thought we had a discussion before this, uh, James. <laughs> and was, my name was against one of them. Oh, right. Sorry. I did have a similar time, mate. Sorry. But, yeah, um, there's, yeah, so there's, there's jobs going, you know, right now and, um, and that's and what a great opportunity started. for somebody to come in. Uh, what kind of level of experience are you looking for? Uh, well, I think that for the for the we're uh, looking for shift guys that can run a shift, so they will have kind of dealt with it, you know, and, and will be qualified distillers in terms of they've spent time in distilling and know what you know what they they've um, you know know what they're about because the distillery is almost entirely manual. So yes, it's got a turnkey from the sites and there's a lot of kind of electronic stuff in there, but but actually it's pretty heavily manually based because we wanted to create employment. So that's, that's the route we've gone. Um, and, and so that's, that's the kind of start point of it. And then we, we probably need some, you know, good pairs of hands that can kind of keep stuff working, knock the head off a barrel and, uh, and a whole load of those kind of ancillary skills just around the distillery itself. Plus, 
you know, next summer, you know, we'll open it for, to the public, I think, next summer. I think we'll, we'll spend the winter perfecting recipes, learning about what's going on, you know, how the bits of kit like to work, what would they don't like, um, how the cooker works, particularly with the pot still. And, um, and we'll do all of that, you know, not quite behind closed doors. I mean, you know, Laurie from Whiskey Chats, he was up and, was, you know, guys are messaging me routinely. If they're in the area, we'll certainly meet up and have a look at those. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's where the real uh, effect will be felt, as opposed on the knock-on effect of the economy of the local area in terms of people that come and visit you will need a place to eat, need a place to sleep. No, it's and we, yeah, and we've taken it sort of a stage further. You know, we've got um, so we had a tweed. My uncle used to um, was one of the designers at Avoca, so uh, he's re- he's retired now, but he he designed us a family tweed, if you like. But the tweed is. Um, is made up of the colours of the brands and the, and the way we've kind of approached the business. And he, he's, so he designed it. Um, Eddie Doherty, so he used local wools from, um, from Kilcar. And then Eddie Doherty is a hand weaver in Ajra, whose workshop actually overlooks the field where the, the distillery is. He then hand wove it so that we can make, you know, twa- jackets and twi- uh, waistcoats and and whatever we want out of it. So, you know, it's kind of fu- you know, funny how that kind of circular economy starts to, to yeah, fill out. Yeah, things that all... Well, if you look at the whole story, and I know there were difficult times in the beginning and there were challenges, everything seems to have slotted in nicely. And the, the backdrop of the story, it doesn't seem to have been manufactured. It, it just gels. It's there. It's a question of calling for it and you found it. And you resonated it with the right voice. And I think that's why, you know, there's, there's this kind of fanboy element now, I think, to, towards the Silky brand. Um, that's why you know, that's, well, that's what it was. <laughs> that would explain my success of my show as well. <laughs> but yes, we certainly got a, a lot of um, inquiries about uh, the show. And a couple of other questions then. Um, other than that, in terms of uh, sustainability, and I think uh, that was one question raised by Dennis again. Obviously, that said, you're in a very rural setting. You don't want to be bringing heavy machinery and using up uh, heavy resources. How important is that? So we've done, I suppose, it, we've done as much as we can afford to do at the moment, but we have future-proofed the distillery in terms of additional kind of heat recovery and what have you. So. Um, we, we, we kind of capture the waste heat at the moment from for heating the visitor aspects, so they're, they're not heated from, so there's no secondary heat source for that. But the main distillery, so we use, um, there is a steam boiler that's kind of firing up the cooker. But once the, after the cook, we actually use the, we have to cool it before it goes into the fermenters, and that, that cooling process heats the water for the next cook. So, um, so we've got passive heat recovery on, uh, on all, of, all of the processed waters. Um, and the same is true. So when you get to the, the wash still, so the pot ale from the previous day is used to preheat the charge for the next day. The spent lees from the intermediate still is used to preheat the, the charge of the intermediate and the spirit stills for the next day. Um, and we have, instead of straight condensers, we have heat recovery and, and a sub-cooler on it. So the wash still is, uh, the condenser is actually heating the process water tank outside, so keeping it up at 80 degrees. So... So I think we've got a hell of a lot of heat recovery, heat exchanges, and probably some of the headaches we've got at the moment are making sure that they're all capable of dealing with the grains in process. But the guys at Forsyth have really manfully kind of solved all of the headaches that have come so far. Um, and, and we'll do more. 
uh, you know, as we can afford to. So I think we'll, you know, this, yeah. the, the roof space is huge, so we can put a massive amount of photovoltaics up there. We've got um, boreholes sunk, so we can use heat recovery from there if we want to. Um, I think it, it, you can't you can't really come into these things today without an eye on sustainability because it's almost part transparency is a big part of the agenda you know, about what you know what you stand for and sustainability is another and then you know we're for the not for the new site but for the old you know the carrot site where the gym distillery is in the bottom line that's a you know would be a gold members this year so you know we've we've reached that gold standard in their sustainability drive you know, anyone who's buying from us will know that anything that comes out of the shop there's no plastic in any of our packaging um so you know that's We'll continue to drive that because we want to drive it rather than we're specifically telling a story about it. Yeah. Who's the really point I want to make on that was, as if you're not busy enough, you also have the position of vice chairman of the Irish Whiskey Association. And uh, <laughs> obviously, you know, um, you, you get a chance to obviously influence the decisions there that are made. Uh, how important are the new regulations that have been proposed in terms of... Um, you know, pot still in terms of what peach whiskey is. Uh, yeah. How do you open those? Or what, what's your view on them? And how does how does being a member and being vice chair affect what you do? Well, um, well, I suppose vice chair, I have to thank uh, John Quinn for that. And, and and to be honest, he he has the brief kind of well well and truly that. So um, the demands on my time are, are nowhere near what they are on his. So I think you know, in that sense. Um, uh, it's it's probably not that burdensome. I, I kind of to your point right at the beginning. You know, I come from a corporate background, so I have a kind of view. I have a view on how I think the industry should develop. You know, I've got some questions around how the, you know, does regionality become a thing? Does it become a thing based on um, the way Fulcher Island has broken Ireland up into the ancient East and the and the Wild Atlantic Way and all of this kind of stuff? I don't know, but I I kind of wonder that. There isn't a big brand out there. There isn't a big company that owns enough distilleries to impose a kind of regionality. So what does that look like if you don't have an imposition of it? So you don't have a DIG. So I think those kind of things are kind of interesting for me. And, and I want to be in a, I want to have a seat at the table of the body that I think is going to have the most influence. And so that's why we're members of the IWA. And I think we've, I suppose my voice in terms of the smaller guy's voice within the IWA is changing. You know, is, is, is bringing weight to, to the IWA in a good way. I think we're bringing challenge around, you know, the technical file for one, but, but also the tone of voice that the IWA uses and why we talk about things the way we do. And, do, you know, do we think about stuff? And, you know, are we seen as too corporate? And, and actually, are we seen to represent the smaller guys and the, the small business? So firm, the you know, small business committee within the IWA is much, much more active now. And it's also, you know, a lot of us kind of driving, you know, happily sharing the kind of our experience of Crowdcube or Elliot uh, came on and shared his, his experience of the cask schemes. And, and so it's become, it's always been a collegiate industry really, you know, and it's become much more, uh, I'm hoping that we can make that small business part of it even more kind of collegiate, more supportive um, and more practical because that, that, yeah, that's where the hard yards are. And, and if, if I've got scars from stuff that I've learned, then we should help people not have to wear those scars. So I think that bit of the IWA has been, been really good. And then, you know, just think about the, the technical file. 
there's this kind of modern tradition and this historic tradition, you know, and, and, and I think we need to make sure that, that it, you know, some of the richest of innovation is going to come from looking into history in the way that Finon has and kind of brought up some of the stuff that they're doing at, at Boran, you know, for example, in terms of uh, those mixed mash bills and stuff. That's such a rich place. And, and we have to be extra- extraordinarily, I think we should be really grateful that, that we have an Irish whiskey industry at all. And that's down to Bushmills and IBL uh, and, and latterly Keeley. And that, that's, a, you know, that's a, like, enabled us now to stand and do what we want to do. Um, that the technical file was written before anyone could have really conceived of how these, that all of us were going to turn up and try and change, you know, go back to history instead of just building from, say, 1950 onwards. We all, you know, we're all looking to other places for inspiration and for ideas. And, and, and the reality, I think, is as well that the big guys, you know, that part of their challenge is being, is being thought leaders as well. You know, so if you think about who are the thought leaders in the industry, you probably say it's all the smaller guys. And the reality is that you know, IBL and, and um, Bushmills to some extent have, have been trying things, experimenting. Some of the stuff we do is just too small to be interesting for them, but they've probably tried it. And they've, they've now got, you know, they're now as, as restrained as we are by the technical file. So it's absolutely in everybody's interest to see a change. In terms of being a member yourself, uh, what were the benefits for you as a small business other than being able to obviously voice your opinion on the technical side of it, but I presume you took advantage of the education schemes, you know, the knowledge transfer opening of markets. Were they vital for you or just made easier? Um, some of it was vital and some of it was made easier. So I think, I think you know, my background is distribution and brands and I have a limited technical experience. So, so the, the market stuff is probably less, it is less important to me. Than, than the technical pieces and, and being able to touch on, you know, to, to tap into the technical support that's there. So from a labeling perspective, from a can I, can I say this, can I go at these things like this, but also being able to just pick up the phone because you've, you've sat with you know, you know, the team, Jack or Stephen Tealing at a meeting or you've, you, know, you can talk to people who have have already come across the problems you've come across. And you know, uh, actually, the one person who right at the beginning and continues to be a, a great help to me is someone like Peter Mulryan, you know, who, who carefully cultivates his kind of angry man uh, yes. uh, voice. But actually, you know, we went and saw Peter when he did his first, you know, So You Want to Make Gin course way back in 2016, I think it was. And, and he shared everything so openly with us. And, you know, not, not just me, it was like, it was like 15 of us on the course. And, and we, you know, subsequently, whenever I phoned him up and said, Peter, you know, what, what, I'm, trying, I'm thinking about this. And he's like, geez, don't do anything until you've spoken to your, t- to your revenue officer. Don't do this until you've done that. And, you know, David Armstrong up at Radamon, you know, the, the, uh, you know, Jarlath, you know, all of the, I think it's the fact that you can then talk to these guys and say, I'm coming up against this, what do I do? Um, yeah. I think it, that stuff is, is invaluable. But I find that there's, you know, having an agenda, I, I do have an agenda. You know, I would like to see Irish Whiskey Challenge, you know, Scotch, and I'd like to see us being the, the sort of the go-to category that people kind of go, this, this is the brand, these are the categories that are really on fire. These are the, the guys that are really relevant. These are the guys that are changing the way people should be doing things. And, and coming to us, instead of people kind of looking at the SWA and going, oh, the SWA is the gold standard. Well, 
you know, I wouldn't have a voice in this SWA. I'm way too small, so I don't think it is. You know, they don't have one member, one vote, so I don't like that either. Um, you know, there are guys that will say, well, you know, to be a member of the IWA, you have to join either, and, and, and you know, that's more expensive. And I, I get that. I, I, for me, that's a cost worth paying because I get the I get access to the Small Firms Association, their legal people, their HR people, and, and I get guidance there. So. In the round, I think it's a it's a place that I, I, works for me, um, and I think you know it's what's important is that we all have the best interests of the category at heart, and, and kind of put that through and challenge you know, and, and 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 where we have differences, kind of openly share them and, and, and kind of we can agree to differ. There's stuff on the technical file that's been submitted, and I don't want to go into it now, but I, I don't agree with some of it. But it's kind of that's the review that's going in when it goes out to public consultation. If I disagree, I can put a view. Yeah, so. yeah. I wanted to touch on uh, one person who obviously had a significant role in Slew League and, and the founding of it, and, and that's the late Oliver Hughes. And, yes. and yeah, I saw on your website you do pay a nice tribute to him, of course. And, who was uh, definitely a charismatic renegade, that's for sure. And um, you know, I think my first meeting with him was actually up in Sleeve League. Oh, joining him home from Sleeve League <laughs> Dublin, which uh, I don't think he appreciated too much. But uh, yeah, I mean, how, how big an influence was Oliver what you're doing? Uh, Do you know, he was one of these guys um, that you, you, when you met him, you knew immediately you were going to work with him. Just you knew, you know, and he did have, um, I think he was visionary. I think he was very, very good at surrounding himself with people who could help him deliver that. You know, I think he recognized that and, um, and he, he put challenge on us that helped us shape a better business for sure. You know, so we're, we're, we're in a better place and in some of the early hurdles we kind of went through. He facilitated conversations for us that we wouldn't have got a voice at the table without him. So um, he's, he's always, you know, I'll always be grateful for that. Um, I was very fortunate that because I came out of a sort of corporate background that he he was he and uh, and me and um, Lahar because at the same time we're looking at how how they structured the porterhouse and how they looked at Dingle and then what what all of these businesses meant. And and I kind of I had a I have a sort of more strategic, more corporate sort of structure into my in my head, and and so he asked, well, they asked me if I'd sort of help, kind of informally chair the business for them. So you know, we we had a lot of time together. We had a lot of curries in, um, uh, you know, gosh, at Shiva's place. What is it called now? Um, just just down the road from Waterhouse Central, but you know we used to sit there and put the world to rights over red wine and a curry, and um, and I mean you know I think his his loss and you know it was significant at the time for us. I think we've kind of weathered it well. I think it was massive for Waterhouse and Dingle. Monty's absolutely thank you. Um, the um, but one of the things that he would be. I think incredibly proud of, but I, I'm incredibly proud of is the way that you know, Elliot stepped into a biz dev role and, and kind of really has stepped into the, the sort of leading elements of the business. The way Liam Lahart, who would not have been wanting that kind of top job and, and that to have to, to sort of pick up the reins and run the whole thing. Um, the way they picked that business up and you know, approached the, the banks, the shareholders, everything else. Um, 
and and held it together. That board of directors and, and Elliot and Liam specifically were incredible at that time, absolutely incredible. And uh, and the business probably innovation wise slowed down a little bit, but probably discipline and structure and and kind of. Uh, it, it actually is, I think it's a stronger business now than it was then. And that's not because, because Oliver died, but because I think his sad death left us with a, you know, a need to solve these things. And so, you know, remarkable family, remarkable people. And, and Helen actually is still, still a shareholder in Snoo League now. So, oh, that's great. That's great. Okay. Uh, look, I've kept you a long time uh, and time has just flown. But, uh, just quickly, and we'll sort of see if we can do it quickly, but um, where, do you, where do you see the future of one Ferrari Christie and where do you see it for Sleeve League and that? So, I think the, the, the industry is, is, uh, is very, very well placed. I think the category is strong. Um, I think John Quinn said, you know, a rising tide rises, you know, lifts all ships. I'd say a rising tide lifts all seaworthy ships. So I think we need to make sure that the businesses are well funded. Um, I think there's a, there's a better, a much better approach to kind of labeling and stuff like that. And there's more, I'm sure there's more that will come on that. I think there's, there's a much greater diversity of liquid available to now. There's, you know, the whiskies that are coming out is very good. I would have a watch out about the kind of uber premiumization of some of, some of the industry that, that would worry me that, um, that, it becomes a little bit gauche and a little bit that could that could work against us in the long run. But I think as long as we get more sort of depth and diversity and, and kind of richness to the category, I think the business is, is you know, the, the category will go from strength to strength. And I love the fact that it's no longer just about distilleries. It's about people doing different things. So whether you're a bonder, an independent bottler, um, or, or, or a distiller, you know, there's, there's this sort of, the roles are kind of almost all being much more easily accepted, and I think the industry is kind of growing up into that. And I think it's a really good thing. But well, it everybody will need everybody at, at some stage. I, I think that's that's right. And then, um, and then uh, for us, the Sleeve League piece within it, I think it's ultimately that we're we're taking a distinctive position here. So we're not going to try and please everybody. We are going to try and please. Uh, you know, we are going to create the Isle of Ireland in Donegal, and and. You know, search for key to perfection, I guess. And, yeah. you know, and, and hopefully, you know, our brand of, of, you know, savory gin and, and smoky Irish whiskies will, will be seen as distinctive and different and relevant and, and kind of grow, you know, grow to a point that, you know, we can maybe do more things, you know. But I have to say, I'm in huge admiration of what you've done and in all the difficulties that you've gone through, the challenges. Taking the vision going from Hong Kong to to Donegal is a, certainly a change of uh, change of pace. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, well, I think Moira, I have to say, Moira is really you know she she's the rock in, in, in our relationship, and she's the one. She's a far better gymnast than than I ever was. So, it's always um, the quiet ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a quiet one and a, and, a, and a nurse as well. So um, uh, you know, I think none of this happens without the kind of strength that she gives me. So. Well, I have to say, what, what just strike me, I'm sitting now and I'm, I'm thinking, and I, and I remember, was it, was it your grandmother that was in um, Sleeve League when you lost the Sophie? Or was it a No, no, my great auntie. No, my auntie, yeah. sorry. Yeah, my auntie, but she, yeah, sadly she died last year, yeah. yeah. Auntie but I remember having a chat with you up there and 
If your concept hasn't changed, I don't, you know, your concept of the, you know, bringing to the locality the, the jobs, bringing to the locality uh, the kind of tourism you're talking about, and then think through to yourself in terms of the the type of the style of whiskey, that has not changed. You know, and I was, it hits me now, like, yeah. Well, it's funny when you think back to that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think Peter wasn't a journey uh, in 2016, people weren't ready for it. No, no. But, no. Um, yeah, I was but, yeah. Uh, it's been a great night and a great ride. I've had a few bolts along the way, but, but uh, like I said, still standing. I, I, yes, and uh, standing stronger, I think. So, look, I wish you and the team and all those in our direct the very best of luck, great success. Looking forward to your presidency when it comes about. <laughs> and uh, we'll, be up to, we'll be up to visit as soon as we're. Uh, Please, do. Please come and see us, yeah, and um, we can show you around. And thank you so much for the time tonight, Sergio. I just really appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. The time has really flown by, so I apologize for keeping you late. You're at all, mate. I'm just more, I'm not apologizing to you. <laughs> <laughs> if she sneaks in over my shoulder, you'll know you're in trouble. So. Yes, yeah. Look, slow that, and keep going. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us on that uh, another conversation that I really enjoyed. And if you have enjoyed it, please do give it a like, follow the, uh, and bear in mind that this is made possible by Irish Whiskey Magazine as well. And what we're trying to do is bring authentic stories. And, uh, and I, I think James really epitomizes uh, that brilliantly. So thank you for joining us, and we'll speak to you soon.